Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm Chris Avina with American Outdoor News. Today we have Andy McCartney with uh, Bowdoin Tactical and Bowdoin Manufacturing. Andy, thanks for coming to see us today. Oh, happy to be on. So tell me a little bit about Bowdoin Manufacturing. That's more of the uh, more of government contracts, things of that nature. It is uh, you know, pretty general purpose machine shop. We uh, you know, our our intent is to to have our customers feel like we're the next best thing to have in our own in-house shop for, for the CNC production parts that we make. So, um, you know, we, we spent a lot of time uh, communicating and working with uh, the engineering and quality teams of our customers, as well as the purchasing folks that are handling logistics to, to make sure that it feels just like an extension of their own stuff. Um, you know, we do a bunch of government stuff. We do a lot more uh, uh, second and third tier to government stuff and, and a lot of defense stuff. Um, and then, you know, some general industrial. Um, we got aerospace certified guys probably been 15 years ago or so now and ISO 9000 turned into uh, AS9100, which is what we are now. Um, and so service in the aerospace market has been a big part of what we've, what we've been going after and what we've been doing. and and. You know, it's that market that kind of stays steadily going along until, you know, a global pandemic comes along and then everybody stops feeling comfortable flying airplanes. And, and so that industry has really, you know, went through the ringer at the beginning of the pandemic and now is racing to try and come back as fast as possible, even though, you know, it's a very challenging job market and a very challenging supply chain market that, that essentially they, they really took down to nothing and now they're trying to rebuild. So um, it's been, you know, it's, that, that mainline business of our manufacturing stuff 
um, you know, has been, it started back in 1952. I would obviously, um, I wasn't here at that point. That was a little before my time, but, uh, um, you know, we continue to try and do a lot of that industrial and defense related stuff. Do you find that your business um, changes with each administration? Uh, there's certainly uh, there's certainly a cyclical nature. Um, I think it it changes more when there's a shift from party to party, right? So you know when when the same party stays in control for you know multiple terms, then um, that that doesn't create as much change as when we go back and forth and and. Um, you know, I think especially when you're in the defense zone, um, you know, as, as we and I, I'll never forget when when Obama won the election and leading up to that, um, you know, the, the kind of the Republican administration that was there, you know, they want to make sure the troops can stay protected. And so, you know, they have some ability to exercise um, their budgets and, and stuff. And so they were buying. Uh, and, and it's, I mean, it's, so it's partly here in the government cycle that they get certain budget for the year. And if they don't spend it all, they don't get it the next time, right? So they, uh, there's a lot of what you hear is that stereotypical end of the fiscal year buying. Yeah. Uh, and so when there's an election cycle, um, it feels like that, you know, that leading up to that, if, if, if a Republican administration feels like they're going to lose, then, then they'll start buying extra. Um, before the end of that fiscal year, even before the election. And then once the election happens, you know, they're still there until the new administration comes in. And so that there's a, there's more buying that goes on maybe than is typical, uh, you know, when a Republican administration is outgoing. Um, but it, it, it does, I mean, you know, obviously the laws, um, you know, can change from, you know, administration to administration and, you know, obviously depending on what's going on in Congress and, and the Supreme Court. Uh, certainly as we've gotten more into the tactical market, um, that's had a lot more direct impact than just government defense buying, um, because now you know the red legislation and stuff in the tactical market um, tends to make things oscillate dramatically faster. Now, Bowden Tactical, you uh, manufacture um, kits. So we do, yeah. So we there we started with Bowden Tactical. So we had been doing a lot of defense stuff. Um, and one of the, the times where the gun market was growing, the, the ARs and commercial gun market was growing, uh, we, we got uh, some contract work to make handguards for, I think there were seven or eight different uh, you know, OEM builders. Um, and, and so that kind of got us, I mean, we dipped our toe in the water to use other people's extrusions to make handguards. And um, so that was, it was good engineered product for us. We were learning a lot pretty quick over different ways to make uh, make the parts and different ways to make sure that, that we were meeting the mill standard, uh, you know, Picatinny rails and stuff. Brett to engineering, please. Brett to engineering. Sorry, we've got real live, real live action going on. That's the actual shop. You actually have a running uh, operation. Yeah, got the operation behind me. Um, <laughs> but so we learned a lot. And then, um, you know, as, as the market was going up and down, we there was a downturn that, that started um, and so we found ourselves in a spot where, um, you know, we had uh, a customer that had ordered a lot of parts and then didn't want them. And, and so um, we, as we were looking to see, hey, how do we play in this market? We had somebody say, hey, if you can make a stock handguard, we'd, we'd love to get some of that. And, and so, um, you know, that was, it was one of those where 
you know, the, the initial conversation sounded like, hey, if you could get me a seven inch handguard for $30, I'd buy 10,000 of them. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, a big gun guy, but I could do that math in my head that says, hey, this Good. is probably a problem worth solving. So um, we solved the problem. We brought a $30 seven inch handguard and, and to which the, the person who had asked us, the big distributor had said, well, did I say $30? I meant 22. Um, and so, you know, we're like, oh, come on. But so at this point, now we've gotten an extrusion, we had a base level, you know, basic design. And so we said, hey, let's go talk to some other people and see who might want a kind of a pre-engineered handguard design. And so that's what really got us into the into the market. We started producing for uh, a couple of the bigger bigger suppliers of product and, and we started private labeling designs. And that's really what put us on the map and made that business take off. Because um, we are, um, you know, we are significantly less expensive to get a, a custom handguard design than, than really anybody else in the marketplace to do any kind of, I mean, there's some guys like Unique ARs where you can get a one-off that is uh, really cool stuff, um, but it's not something that, you know, for a small builder to set themselves apart and set their AR apart, um, you know, we provide a very cost-effective way to make a signature look AR because the handguard is, let's say 70% of the visual difference between one AR to the next, right? And so um, that opportunity to, to private label for folks and create a design with them, um, you know, we probably have 60 or 70, uh, actually I think it's over 70 now, different companies that we've developed designs and built in production for them. Um, we have low minimums, I mean, 50 pieces and, and um, very modest engineering charges, like 2,500 bucks to, to design your own thing. Where, you know, the biggest thing, I mean, the other big handguard companies at the time, it was a thousand piece minimum, right? So the, to a thousand piece minimum on a roughly a hundred dollar handguard starts to feel like real money. Um, and so for us to do a 50 piece minimum, um, you know, of, a, of an $80 handguard or whatever, you know, it's just a totally different equation. So um, that's what we exploit the smaller market. Right, right. And so once we did that, um, you know, as, as we started to see options for providing other parts and components to the people that we were building handguards for. And so we expanded our line, we started making grips, we started making other stuff and said, you know, if we, if we did this, we could um, make um, kind of a, a baseline stock, quote unquote, stock handguard that some people just need handguards and they want them to be, and need them to be American made for their customer base, which we appreciate. And so then uh, the opportunity to, uh, to take that, and we had kind of what we called our foundation line, um, and yet some of the folks said, hey, you know, when, when there have been supply hiccups dealing with overseas suppliers, they said, hey, what we really want is a cost-effective uh, domestically produced handguard. And so we ended up designing a new extrusion and we came out with our cornerstone line, which is really designed to compete with, um, you know, the foreign source product that was in the marketplace, mm -hmm. um, where it was still a little, I mean, I mean, you could get all sorts of stuff, but, you know, it was, it's just a good quality handguard that is, is made here in this, you know, right back there. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it was designed to minimize the manufacturing costs and be competitive with those. And so, you know, that had us, now that we had a bunch of stock products and we said, okay, hey, how about we get into the retail space? So we designed a little uh, retail store display that I think we're in 130 some stores now across the country. Um, where we have our, our, what we call an A architect line. So it's the, the word architect with the big AR with the little rifle in between. This is our part of our branding. Um, but, uh, you know, to support builders, guys who and gals who want to build, especially build in their first one, 
we provide a lot of content to help people. Uh, and, and that's where, as you alluded to, we've now got kits where, um, you know, getting a kit, everything but the lower. So we don't have an FFL. We're, we All we do is supply pieces and parts that, that can be used, but we can send it as a kit so that uh, somebody, if you know, and, and if a gun store or a range or a dealer wants to host a class, right, hey, get a couple of kits and you can have people learn how to build an AR and you can teach mm -hmm. them and show them. Um, and then an opportunity, obviously, if, if they want to, Buy any other accessories and/or upgrade, and, and certainly have a place to shoot. Um, you know that's a, a great opportunity for um, for those stores to, to build a customer base. So that's kind of been our approach. Um, you know, we we set up a website uh, that's byoar.com for buildyourownar.com, and and so we've done some direct to consumer stuff there, and then take that Architect brand out to the marketplace in a retail environment. Um, for us, being longtime contract manufacturers, it was a new spot for us. Um, we had not done retailer. We had not dealt with distributors, um, you know, and so it's been a learning experience. And, and it's now, I think, been four or five, six years now that, um, you know, that we created this separate bout and tactical as a company just really for marketing purposes to go into directly to that tactical market. Um, and so we're, we're continuing to figure out, hey, what new products do we, do we offer? How do we make sure that the word can get out, that people can get their own custom designs pretty easily? Um, especially relatively, you know, relative compared to what else is in the marketplace for people getting custom stuff. So, um, so that's kind of been the, the path that we've walked with the Bowden Tactical from, from just starting out making, you know, as if it was a regular Bowden manufacturing job. Hey, here's a handguard with an extrusion um, to now having our own product line and our own, our own brand that we're putting in the marketplace. Well, I know it has a great look. And it has an extremely comfortable feel uh, when when you're holding a, a complete kit uh, when it's you know fully assembled, and awesome. and it fires smooth too. So <laughs> it's uh, I got to say it's a really good product. But we're going to take a, a quick break here to acknowledge some of our sponsors. Um, uh, Underwood Ammo, always a standard of excellence. Pyro Putty and Phone Scope, always innovative with their products and. We're going to hear from Hunt of a Lifetime, and we'll be right back. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength. To provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true. To provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a non-profit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. Okay, and we're back. <laughs> um, all right, now, Andy, there's, there's a lot going on in the industry that uh, could potentially influence your business. Uh, have you um, had any adverse um, effects from the banking industry or the credit card industry, uh, especially on the tactical end? 
so definitely, I mean, on the tactical side, um, you know, there's, there's certain, as we were setting up our direct consumer website, um, you know, we were limited in the credit card processing companies that we would use. And, and fortunately in, in exhibiting at some of the shows and, and being at some of the, you know, the trade industry shows, um, you know, we, we ran into and met a number of folks that, um, you know, specifically on the opposite where they're, they're targeting the, that industry for helping them as opposed to targeting that industry for saying, Hey, do we don't want to participate in that at all? And so we've, we've seen some of that. Um, and, and, you know, we have, uh, a regular kind of our bound manufacturing credit card processor, and then we have our bound tactical credit card processor because, um, you know, it's, it's not the same, uh, because, you know, our, our manufacturing, you know, we use Shopify and that's not one that, that you can use. Um, mm -hmm in the tactical market and so hey we had we've had to adjust and and you know there are there are certainly i think the other one that is noticeable for us is is some of the shipping companies um and, yeah. and you know we we do machine products right and yet if if they have some of them have had if they had the sense that hey these are gun parts then they don't want anything to do with it and and so they've refused to pick up shipments and stuff and um you know it's it's you know, the, the fact, I mean, it was, it's one of those things where, okay, like when we went into our credit card processing, we knew that there were some people that had issues. And so we, it was clear to stare, you know, go down a different path. And the challenge has been is when all of a sudden a, a policy changes by a company and now you have a pickup that doesn't get made because somebody decided, Hey, I'm not going to pick those parts up. And so, um, mm -hmm. that has been more challenging to deal with. And again, it's, it's, uh, you know, trying to do good business. There are, I, you know, there's people that want to support our industry and there's some people that don't and, and hey, finding those that, that want to support it within what we're trying to accomplish is, you know, you find those partners and then you work with them. Yep. Now I know the ATF is coming out with, uh, something it's going to be HR 2021, I think, um, somewhere around there that's going to redefine, uh, the lowers. You know, what, what needs to be serialized, what don't need to be serialized, uh, what defines uh, an 80% lower, or is it going to now be an 83% lower, uh, things of that nature. Uh, even the uh, periscoping stocks, things of that nature is going to fall into uh, that type of bill. Um, now, how will something like that affect your business? Well, and so obviously until legislation is passed, it's really hard to know because there's so much negotiating that happens and how things change as they get um, yeah. toward the closing stages. Um, but I, I mean, certainly, um, you know, we, we have this balance in, in the gun industry, right? There's, there's people that are, are doing, uh, you know, bad things with a gun and, you know, you have people that obviously are, are mentally sick or ill or whatever that are, are doing some crazy stuff and, and it, it makes a bad you know, mark on the industry. Um, at the same time, um, you know, that, I mean, you know, we have an opportunity that, um, you know, we have rights that we should be able to uphold and, and the ability to defend ourselves. So, um, I think as, as these bills come through and, and I think, you know, it's interesting you know, we've talked a lot around here about how the ATF will put out an opinion and then what, what, when does their opinion become law when, uh, uh, you know, yep. stuff gets passed through Congress and then obviously then it's all subject to going through 
uh, Supreme Court review. And so, um, you know, I think the opportunity for us to take it one step at a time, you know, and, and deal with what's what makes sense based on the current set of circumstances and recognizing that, you know, this is one of those industries where that can change day in and day out. We just don't know. Right. And so the opportunity to, to make good decisions, um, you know, we certainly, um, you know, and, and, you know, Jim is our resident gun guy here. I mean, you know, hey, we, we want stuff to be done by the book. Right. And, and you know, we want to be able to say, hey, we do exactly what you're supposed to do, what's required by law. And, you know, we don't have an FFL, so we're not making guns. We're making component parts and accessories. And, and if we have to start serializing handguards or grips or, or uppers or whatever else we're making, hey, we're going to play by the rules. And, and some of those rules will add cost to what we're doing. We understand that. Um, and, and hey, we want to we wanna be able to do good business and you know, make products that people want to use that are, are comfortable and very, very functional and aesthetically pleasing. And if we got to put an extra serial number on something, so be it. If we have, I mean, we're an aerospace shop, so we, we trace material traceability because we know it's, we have a bunch of parts that go on airplanes, right? So for us to adjust how we do traceability, I mean, we're already tracing it from the moment it's, you know, the, the aluminum or the steel or whatever is, is made and certified and before it comes in and we're tracking it all the way through our shop. So for us, the, some of the, the restrictions slash regulations about, being able to trace stuff and, and serialize it and all that stuff. Um, it's, it's an potential uh, additional burden on us, but it's not something that we don't, you know, there's nothing that I've heard yet that feels like it's something that we're not prepared to be able to handle and work through. It's cumbersome, but it's not going to influence you one way or another. It's basically going to determine what constitutes a, um, a um, unfinished frame. Right. So that, you know, might give you an extra step, but it's not really going to affect your business. Yeah, and we don't deal in, because we, we don't have an FFL, we're not making lowers. Yep. Um, and, and we have been asked more than once to make 80% lowers. And, and I mean, we just, we have enough other stuff that we're doing that that's never really come into the zone as something that we should we should start doing. And, and obviously, in light of, you know, what you're talking about, it doesn't make sense to try and get into that, uh, into that business. And as money as as machinists, we've seen some of the parts that we've made that are taken by, you know, somebody in their basement and, you know, it's not functioning the way they want. And it's because they haven't been as good a machinist as, as needed to be to make it function. Right. And, and yeah. so, um, you know, to think about making something that's an 80 percenter and then counting on the functionality of whatever product that we're producing that would have our name on it, depending on the skill of somebody in their basement um, to have it operate as they as they want. You know that's not that doesn't excite me right i'd rather have the quality determined in the building right behind me so that we know that hey we're making good stuff that's going to go in and assemble and, and be what what um you know what we've sold and put out there so um you know we we certainly i mean anything that doesn't function as it's supposed to we want it to come back here so we can replace it understand what happened and, and um, ultimately we stand behind everything we make and and if we make a mistake Hey, we want to we want to rock back in this building so we can learn from it and we can get the person who's got it a product that has our name on it that works as exactly as they want well i know as of um a couple of days ago uh, a new bill surfaced as they were always going to <laughs> yeah this one is um hr 8051 and what's it what it is is they're trying to enforce 
a thousand percent excise tax on any semi-automatic weapon, um, any magazine periscoping stock, uh, which makes it unaffordable for anybody. You buy a um, uh, a Glock for five hundred bucks with the tax, it's going to cost you five thousand dollars. They're they're making it so unaffordable now. Would you exclude your magazines and stocks in your kits if that ever comes to fruition? Or you know, how would you maneuver around that? Well, it's a good, it's a, I mean, it's a fair question. I don't know that we've gotten that far in the thought process of what we're doing. I mean, uh, you know, we do not produce magazines in-house. We purchase those to go with the kits. And, and the same is true for uh, the stocks. And, and so, um, you know, I think it would, I think it might, we might feel differently if, if it was something that we were producing that was suddenly, you know, I mean, it's hard enough to control costs when you're not dealing with a thousand percent tax, right? Um, but, but so the opportunity to see, again, it, you know, money, the reason there, you know, the, the idea behind using money to control behavior is because money does control behavior. And, and sure. so, you know, kind of reaching up and pulling a number out of that saying, okay, how about a thousand percent, right? I mean, it, you know, it, it seems like uh, a lot of times in negotiation, especially in political realms, like, you know, these kinds of things where hey, you start with a number that's so outrageously high that suddenly a 20, you know, a 200% tax doesn't seem so bad when you're talking a thousand percent, right? And so no, the, opportunity, the opportunity to, um, you know, to start outrageous and then see, hey, where does it get us and how do we, how do we work our way through it? Um, you know, the good news for us is, is that we're really pretty small company compared to a lot of the other bigger folks. And, and so the good news is, is, um, you know, when something is, is seemingly as patently unfair to a particular um, branch of what's happening to try and somehow circumvent the other means of legislating, um, you know, controls and whatever, where it's just uh, it's a, an intent to go after somebody's pocketbook, um, you know, those tend to not be able to stand up very long um, because unless there's, you know, you pull a thousand percent, literally you're pulling a number out of the air, right? And so, you know, what number should you pick? And that, you know, there's, I haven't heard any justification for it other than, hey, we want to make it super expensive so nobody will do it. Well, there's a lot of people's industries and lives that are at stake based on, on making a decision like that. And, um, you know, almost, well, any other industry, you know, you'd be, it'd be cries of outrage, right? So, um, you know, we do, I think, um, in this country, we, you know, there's a lot of, as a manufacturer, right, there's been a lot of, in the last, you know, 10 to 20 years, this, all right, are we outsourcing overseas? Are we reshoring and all this stuff, right? And, and we as consumers, we want high quality for as little dollars as we can pay. And we'd love to have it made here. And yet, you know, this, when, when the pandemic came and interrupted the supply lines, yep. we started being willing to pay more for what we could get. And the stuff that we could get was made domestically. And as the supply chain starts unwinding itself. Obviously, we are reshoring a lot of stuff, um, which, you know, making it back in the States. And yet we got accustomed to paying a certain amount for stuff. And we don't like paying more if we if we can find a cheaper option. And, and so sure. that balance between our consumer behavior and our kind of nationalistic mindset around where are we going to get our stuff made? Um, you know, oftentimes the dollars are what 
drives our behavior as consumers more than than anything else. And and so certainly, you know, those, you know, as, as the folks in Washington try and pull different levers to get us to behave a certain way, um, you know, that's, I mean, that's all part of the equation. And, and fortunately or unfortunately for, for guys like you and me, we don't have a whole lot of control over it other than, you know, talking about it and thinking through, hey, how do we deal with this the best we can? And, and you know, supporting the folks that are advocating on our on our industry and our business's behalf, you know, is, is part of the equation. Well, you know, we're seeing a lot of bills being drafted as far as, um, you know, gun control and whatnot, but uh, you're not seeing them go to the floor. So I'm not putting a lot of uh, credence into these bills just yet. And come the midterms, who knows what's going to happen. But, um, you know, what, uh, getting back to the banks, you know, when a credit card company or a bank can pick and choose what industry they want to deal with, that really kind of sets a bad precedent and uh, a very dangerous one at that. It can. I think, um, you know, the, the, you know, I laugh because, you know, thinking about different industries, right? We, when, when I got here 23 some years ago, um, you know, people, you know, people say, hey, you do stuff for automotive and we don't do stuff for it. And we haven't done stuff for automotive because, their industry was notorious for bludgeoning suppliers, especially small guys like us. Yep. And, you, know, you know, deciding that that's not going to be my customer base for selfish reasons. Um, you know, I don't know if there were times when the automotive industry could have used us, but um, you know, one of the beauties of, of having businesses, you can decide who you want to deal with. And so I don't begrudge companies for wanting to use whatever criteria they want to time to, to determine what is or isn't good business for them. Um, I think the the unfortunate flip side of that is is where they're trying to make political statements and or um, you know they they are not thinking very clearly on what they're doing or that it's not the representative of of everybody but it's it's one or two people who have a a, a specific say and and I say that ironically because you know being a guy running a small business there are certain things that I say around here that end up happening just because it's me who said it, right? And so, you know, leadership in, in any of these companies yeah. can do what they want. I think, you know, we all have choices on what we're going to do and not. And, um, you know, how we subject ourselves and where we spend our time and money, you know, that helps dictate things. And, and you know, I know our industry deals with social media a lot. And as, as anybody trying to promote, and we're severely limited on how we can do that. And, and while I understand it, obviously, it limits our ability to do some of the stuff that we can do in in other industries or other areas of what we're doing. So, um, no, it's I mean, uh, you know, it's 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 not great having an industry that we're working for that has you know that gets targeted against it. Um, and yet, you know, I've seen it in other areas for different reasons. And um, you know, hey, we we do the best we can to, to do good business. Well, yeah, that's uh, all we can do is the best right. we can do. But uh, we're running out of time here, but uh, I appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. And uh, we'll have Jim on uh, shortly as well. I want to speak to him about the, uh, the gun end. But um, I appreciate your time and hope to see you again soon. Absolutely. Just a pleasure to, to get to spend a little more time with you. And I appreciate your, you know, spending some time with, my, with our team and, and, you know, Rick and Jim, you know, enjoyed the conversations. Look forward to keeping it going and, and as you hear stuff keep us in the loop all right i certainly will awesome. thanks again thanks a lot take care all right andy let me